traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Hello and welcome to The Economist Asks. I'm Anne McElvoy, and as part of our Open Future season, we're asking Madeleine Albright, previously America's first female Secretary of State, how can foreign policy now meet the challenge of populism? Around the world, from Italy to Mexico and Turkey, confused and angry voters are choosing leaders who claim to represent the common people against a corrupt elite. But many of the charismatic politicians who ride these sentiments to power then end up undermining democracies and a free press. And the latest is Recep Tayyip Erdogan, winning Turkey's presidential election with sweeping new executive powers, making him the most mighty leader since Ataturk. Madeleine Albright's childhood was shaped by the actions of autocrats in their most extreme form. Her family first fled Prague to Britain to escape the Nazis. Then, after the communists took over in Czechoslovakia in 1948, sought asylum in America. As American ambassador to the United Nations and then as Secretary of State under Bill Clinton from 1997 to 2001, she shaped America's role promoting democracy around the world. Madeleine Albright, welcome to The Economist Asks. Delighted to be with you. Thank you. Now, you've written a book called Fascism, A Warning. What and who are you warning? I am uh, warning the publics of the world, the voters, the next generation, about some of the steps that I've been seeing develop in our societies. And those are divisions that then become exacerbated by demagogic leaders who want to make sure those divisions remain and that those people that are their base, the kind of a tribalist approach, that they control things and the minority has no voice. And that ends how governments and societies need to exist. So I am warning about that. But you've used the word fascism, and it's a description that I have to admit I slightly jib at because it seems to me to have quite a specific connotation, and at least in recent memory has its roots in a particular time in the 20th century. What you're describing could just be called extreme authoritarianism. Why do you use the fascism description? Well, partially, and I think you said very well, the truth is that people just kind of throw the word around without knowing what it really means. And uh, you say somebody that you disagree with is a fascist, and it kind of gets thrown around. The truth is that there is a different fascism all the time. It isn't exactly, you know, we're not saying Hitler every time, but that, in fact, fascism is not an ideology. It is a method of operating that, in fact, can exacerbates the divisions in society, makes sure that there is no freedom of the press, and undermines any kind of democratic system, uses propaganda to gather people, which does actually lead to violence, and makes sure that all central authority is really gathered in one leader who is never wrong. But because it's not an ideology, and every generation has its own form of fascism, it is hard to define. 
And could Donald Trump be called a fascist or on you know, on the criteria that you've just applied? I deliberately do not call him a fascist. I don't think he's a fascist. I think the easiest way to describe a fascist leader is somebody who identifies with one group only, kind of a tribal aspect, has no respect for the rule of law, and is willing to use violence to get what so, he wants. So who is a fascist in the world today? Well, I actually think that Kim Jong-un, the North Korean leader, is a fascist. I do write about others uh, that I've seen that are on their way to being there. For instance, uh, Orban of Hungary, Erdogan in Turkey, Maduro in uh, Venezuela. But I'm careful in terms of I definitely do not call Trump a fascist, but I am concerned. I have said I think he is the most undemocratic president in modern American history. He does think he's above the law. He does, in fact, say that the press is the enemy of the people and used a lot of his rallies, and he still does, to kind of make sure that the divisions last and that there's always a group that he's against. Doesn't uh, the criteria for fascists mean that you, you have to have an intention to invade or conquer? Because that's what sets it apart from being a communal garden, authoritarian or autocrat. Well, I think it's that desire and capability of using violence to get what you want, a bully with an army and spreading the, the message all the time. But that violent aspect is a very basic part of the definition. But when you say that violent aspect, if we look to a time when American power was being projected militarily, we come back to a, partly to a time when you know, you're, you're in office, the Democrats are in the White House, and American forces projected in the world. Now, to its enemies, that might look like the application of violence. Well, I think you've asked a complex question, and, and part of the issue is I teach, and I say foreign policy is just trying to get some country to do what you want. So what are the tools? And my course is about the toolbox, and there are not a lot of tools in it. And so you have diplomacy, bilateral and multilateral, the economic tools, trade and aid and sanctions, and the threat and the use of force, because I do believe there are times you need to use force. But in uh, the Balkans, for instance, it was used in order to stop a form of fascism, which was trying to eliminate a group of people not for anything that they had done, but for their religion. And what are your fears for the Balkans now? And do you think it would be possible to build that kind of intervention coalition? Admittedly, you know, rather late in the day, as it turned out, because an awful lot of uh, very bad things happened, including the Srebrenica massacre, before America kind of got its boots on and, and, and went in. But do you think that it would be possible to prevent that now? given the divisions in the world? I think actually um, difficult, frankly, and partially what is happening in the Balkans is a spread to some extent of fascist aspects there. I was just reading about what's happening in Slovenia, for instance, in terms of, uh, again, a very far-right leader being elected or put in. Some of it has to do with the economy, but in the Balkans, there still are divisions uh, along ethnic lines made more complicated by the fact that it is being exacerbated by the Russians, frankly. What's who, your evidence for that? Well, I think that what we see are is more and more influence of Russia and the Balkans. They weren't very happy with what happened in the first place, whether it's Slavic solidarity or a variety of aspects. And uh, basically in, uh, is that the Russians are trying to undermine 
what we call Western civilization, though they seem to believe that they are the keepers of Western civilization through Orthodox religion and being anti any of the changes um, in our society. So I have to tell you, I've never seen such a complex time where there are all kinds of movements that call upon people to be patriotic, and then it turns into having that patriotism be pushed against a group they don't like, a scapegoat. That's one part. And then there are obviously a lot of economic issues, and then there are the migrants, and so everything kind of piles up in order to undermine democratic governments, which require compromise. Do you have a sort of look into your soul and think, this is not where we thought we would be 20, 30 years after rather hopeful 1990s for Western democracy and the spread of liberalism. And what do you think we got wrong? You know, I ask myself this question all the time, and I also go over exactly what you said in terms of that we were very hopeful. And when President Clinton was in office and the kinds of things that we did, whether through the United Nations when I was there and then later as secretary, it was really a sense that we were in a new era. And President Clinton kept talking about building bridges to the 21st century and and looking at how the international and national institutions were working and thinking that if we just lifted the, the yoke of communism in those countries, that the people would really rise to the occasion and the governments would and everybody would live happily ever after. I think that we expected probably too much after 50 years of communism. And in the Balkans, frankly, with which we are both familiar, I think that the next administration didn't do what needed to be done, which was to help what were fragile systems put together at Dayton and then later in Kosovo. Let's turn to America now, eventful. You've described Mr. Trump as a president who doesn't appear to attach much weight to either international cooperation or democratic values. But did presidents of the recent past perhaps fall into a trap of placing too much value on the international stage and not enough on the domestic, and that in part accounts for the rise of Mr. Trump? I have seen through my own life, as well as study of history, what happens when the United States is not involved, and it always takes a while. President George Washington talked about not getting involved in entangling alliances, and uh, the Americans have gone through isolationist periods. I do think that one of the issues for somebody that's into foreign policy the way I am is to try to make foreign policy less foreign for the American people and understand that America's wealth especially in the 21st century, does in fact depend on other countries um, and try to figure out how the U.S. fits internationally. So you cannot conduct the policy of a country based only on international and on foreign policy. I happen to believe that they're linked. You have to combine what is going on in the country with what is going on outside it. And as someone who knows what it is to be a refugee uh, yourself, in a sense your family fleeing from two dictatorships of the 20th century in Central Europe, but how should America now deal with immigrants? And what is a realistic way forward that sort of combines what people actively want and what they don't want or what they feel uneasy about? I think that America really is a country based on diversity, but every country has a right to make decisions about its immigration policy. America policy has been fairly open and liberal. It's not a crisis anymore. It is something 
that is almost a permanent state. And I, I think that the problem is that there's not a an overall, a comprehensive look at immigration, how to have a really good immigration law that brings people in and doesn't make people, uh, people aren't separated from their children and you don't decide that Muslims can't come into the country. And I find it very hard for the United States to be critical of what is going on in Europe if we can't get our act together ourselves. If we look at the children at the border question, which has commanded a, a lot of attention and shock in, in the last couple of weeks. Democrats also presided over a hard and hardening border with Mexico, with uh, sort of human rights infringements that go along with that. Many people perish trying to cross it. Do you think we have a bit of a double standard about the border? I think that we have been trying to sort out um, what happens on a border. I don't think it needs a wall. I think we need to have laws that are clear, that are carried out in a fair way and not kind of irrationally to all of a sudden separate children from their parents. It's a difficult time, isn't it, for the Democratic Party to the extent that the energy seems to still be coming, if we just look at recent some you know, recent election results, seems to be coming from the left of the party. You uh, come more from the centre of that tradition. Is there really a danger that Democrats will divide and that President Trump may in fact end up being in the White House for two terms? Well, I think that the, both parties are kind of confused at the moment uh, between left and right, and the center it is not there in the Republican Party, and, and I think there is a question about the Democratic one. I think that there was a very interesting election on Tuesday where one of the people, Congressman Crowley, got defeated by a very young 28-year-old Puerto Rican American. This uh, is in New York. Uh, uh, it was a, a an election, a primary election for the de in the Democratic Party in and around New York, and very much of a surprise. And in reading some of the commentary about it, it showed exactly what you were just saying, which is basically that there is a new generation. Um, and a lot of them inspired by the left wing of the Democratic Party. So, uh, but there is incredible exuberance in the Democratic Party, which I am very uh, pleased with. A lot of women running, a lot of interest now in politics. And one of the things, um, we have this saying in the United States, see something, say something. I've added to it, do something. And one of the my to-dos is to urge people to run for office and then support them and see that kind of discussion going on. You don't worry that your exuberance might be misplaced to the extent that a lot of this energy and the, the place that it comes from on the broadly ideological spectrum tends to be sceptical of intervention, tends to be, you know, in sort of more to the left in terms of its foreign policy outlook in the world, and that therefore the sort of liberal and intervention tradition that you stood for kind of ends up being eaten away at both ends of the spectrum. Well, I, I do think that uh, actually President Obama was elected to get out of the wars that we were involved in, and I think that um, there is kind of a sense that uh, we should worry about ourselves and not the others. Believe me, no matter who is elected, I'm going to keep saying that America is better off when we have alliances and relationships with other countries. And, you know, I happen to believe that people prefer to live in the country where they were born. If the United States can actually, with our allies, help the situation in X country so that people actually can live there, 
that will help on the migration issue. So everything is kind of connected. But I think people need to know the U.S. is not a colonial country. It's We don't want to run the world. And the question is how to have a balance between what has to be done internally and what needs to be done externally. And when you look around the world, and we're sitting here in Europe today, we're in central London, and I know you've been in, in Berlin and, and beyond in continental Europe. How do you think foreign policy needs to change to meet these new populist challenges? I think the issue here is that there is not a lot of confidence in any institutions that exist now. And I have said, uh, frankly, that people and institutions at age 70 need some refurbishing. And if things were even vaguely logical, we would be working on some of the institutional structures because they're not delivering. And I I, I stole this Which line. ones aren't delivering? Well, Ms. most Aubrey. of them. And let me just say the following thing. I stole this as a plagiarized line, but it really explains a lot. Uh, people are talking to their governments on 21st century technology. The governments listen to them with 20th century technology and are providing 19th century responses. The governments, whether they are, uh, in our case, national or state governments, are not responding. The only ones that seem to understand what's going on are the mayors and city councils, those that are close to the people. So I think there needs to be some way of trying to address what are issues. There are divisions in society due primarily to um, technology that has taken away jobs from people. We've also seen the role of foreign secretaries change a bit. Secretary of State is the the grand title. Let's see, America. Yeah. Well, we have foreign secretaries yeah. here. But if you look at, say, someone like Boris Johnson, he comes from what you might call a sort of populist light tradition, at least in recent years. He has embraced uh, Leave. He's sort of the leader of the Leave uh, side in the government. He often shoots from the hip in, in what he says. Do, do you rather admire Boris Johnson's approach, or do you think it kind of breaks with a tradition in which there's a club of foreign secretaries who sort of speak alike? Uh, Well, there is a, uh, you know, I I have just uh, hosted a meeting of former uh, foreign ministers, and we do have a different way of talking. I do think that what is important, however, and I really can't judge the situation in uh, Great Britain on this basis, but um, where you can popularize foreign policy and explain why one needs it. I might not do it in the way Boris Johnson does. I've heard him in various things, and uh, but I do think... Did you find it interesting, amusing, or disturbing? Disturbing. Uh, because? Well, I think that the one I heard was kind of, frankly, a little bit the way President Trump behaved at the G7, which is kind of, you know, you don't get an awful lot by kind of... Um, uh, exacerbating the problems. But I I honestly don't want to get into criticizing. We have a meeting coming up between President Trump and and Vladimir Putin. Some fears being raised uh, that uh, parts of the the NATO agreement might be traded away or just kind of carelessly left on the sidelines as a result of that. Is that a reasonable fear? I, I am afraid of that. By the way, I have been to meetings and I was just in Brussels um, and talking to people generally about alliances in the NATO meeting. I am a great believer in NATO, but again, it needs uh, modernizing in a number of different ways. I agree. When we were in office, we did, in fact, want the new, everybody in NATO to pay up um, what the 2% get uh, uh, and then really be more supportive of it. 
Do you feel when you look at defence spending, this has been a long conversation and an argument, which is still to a sense unresolved. I mean, you have mentioned a 2% uh, target. You haven't even got Germany to reach that target. What is it about the view of the world now, which says everything is very dangerous, but we're not going to pony up for for defence? Does that trouble you? It does trouble me because I do think we were very much a part of the expansion of NATO and something called Partnership for Peace. And I made very clear when we went to the countries as saying that um, NATO is not a charitable organization. You have to, in fact, participate and cooperate. I think what would be interesting is to take better inventory of the various things that the allies do beyond just troops and boots on the ground, uh, a variety of cooperation. And I I do think that we need to understand this is a partnership. And uh, it isn't, I, I don't like the way that President Trump puts it, making it sound as though we are victims of other people's not doing their job, but that we need to strengthen the partnership. There's a failure on the part of Angela Merkel, isn't it? Well, I think part of the issue is that Germany has a history that they're very conscious of. And I think that there are real issues about how they're going to use their arms, etc. But I do wish that, I mean, Germany is a leader in everything these days. And I do wish that they, in fact, did that. I am troubled, however, in some of the language that has been used by President Trump, kind of not fully getting it in terms of how important NATO is for America and for um, our allies. And so um, given some of the surprises that have been visited upon the international scene by things that President Trump has said, the G7 aspect, I think that I hope very much that he makes clear that Article 5, which is about the collective security, is the heart of NATO, and that NATO, um, that we, we are, uh, it isn't a transactional thing. NATO is not a hotel where people come and pay for the night and move on. I think that it is a very much of a, an alliance of countries that believe in democratic values, and I hope that that's restated. What do you make of his relationship with Mr. Putin? What troubles me, and it's one of the things, is that President Trump seems to gravitate towards strong leaders and thinks that authoritarian leadership is one of the right aspects. None of us can quite figure out the basis of this friendship, uh, which is why I think people are concerned about what kind of a role the Russians played in our elections. And you think the Mueller inquiry will shed light on that and will bring about actual change, or do you think we'll just have a, a very large report which then people can tear apart depending on their ideological preference? Well, I think that um, from everything I know about Mr. Mueller, he is somebody that is very thorough, and there are more and more people that are questioning what happened. I think that uh, we need to know what happened in the European elections, a number of them which were also influenced. And Russia, I've met President Putin. Um, He is very smart, tough. He has played a weak hand very well, and we have to deep down remember that he's a former KGB agent, and he knows how to use propaganda. I talk about Russia in my book in terms of a leader that is willing to do all kinds of things to maintain authority and has made himself the uh, kind of the Bible, uh, literally, because he's adopted religion all of a sudden, um, in terms of strengthening his own power. And what did you learn from meeting Mr. Putin? 
Well, when I first met him, it was when he was acting as the head of the country, and, and this was at an APEC meeting in, in Auckland, um, and he was trying very hard to ingratiate himself with the world leaders. And then when he actually became president, uh, we had a, a, a summit with him. He is very smart. He speaks without notes and takes notes and is disciplined and knows what he wants. Uh, and I am concerned about what kind of discussions go on uh, because I do think that there's a level of flattery that uh, works on, on President Trump. And I, I think we all want to know what the basis of the relationship is. I used to be known as a Soviet expert, and there are areas where we will always compete with Russia, but we also need to look for areas where we can cooperate. So I am for having uh, decent and functional relationships with the Russians, even though, as I said, I'm concerned about what's going on in the Balkans and the way that they have weaponized information uh, to undermine democracy. But I think there are things we need to work on, on nuclear proliferation, on climate change, any number of things that we would it would benefit both of us and the rest of the world if we work together. Of course, some people who take, if you like, a kind of soft Putinist stance might say, well, do you know what, you, you, you got what you deserved because you, you pushed NATO too far towards the, the borders of Russia, you humiliated and angered Russia, and now you have the blowback. I totally disagree because that means that people didn't follow what was really going on. We tried very hard to include Russia in what we were doing uh, generally. And the bottom line is, I think the U.S. You know, made a mistake when we said we won the Cold War. The bottom line is they lost the Cold War. Communism failed. And I think that what should have happened to those countries that were in the Soviet satellite system against their will uh, when the Soviet Union disintegrated. So I happen to think we did the right thing, and we did respect and try to work with Russia. The problem is that Putin um, is operating off of trying to, you know, he has to remember that he's not Peter the Great. Do you take the view that the Trump meeting with Kim Jong-un was actually a risk worth taking? We don't really know whether the deal, such as it is, will stick. But nothing had moved for about 20 years. I happen to believe in diplomacy. I was very nervous when the two leaders were threatening each other and comparing the size of their nuclear buttons. So I am for um, diplomacy. I think the problem that I had was there was very little preparation for this meeting. Um, and I also am, the meeting itself, as it turns out, was kind of strange to watch in terms of this great friendship and the American and North Korean flags being together. And I was asked whether I saw the summit as a win-win or a Kim-win. I think it was a Kim-win. But what does have to happen now is what comes from this. There is not enough going on in terms of verification or the definition of denuclearization. And I was reading in the papers this morning that there's some activity at Yongbyong in terms of rebuilding. So what really does need to happen is now what? I'm glad they met. It was a, kind of weird to watch. But I think the question is what happens next? I think you met Kim Jong-un's father. I did. Until a couple of months ago, I was still the highest level sitting official to have gone to Pyongyang. And we were actually in the early stages of negotiation about their missile limits, which was what was on the table at the time when the election of 2000 happened. 
and those talks were not carried on by the next administration. And what, what impression did of North Korea and the leadership did you take away from that personal contact with Kim Jong-il? Well, very mixed, frankly, because Pyongyang seemed like a fine functioning city, but having flown in, uh, you could see that the rest of the country, not much was happening. Plus, I had seen a documentary as I came in of people starving and eating bark off the trees. But meeting with him, he actually was isolated, but not uninformed. It was interesting. And he was very smart in terms of understanding all the technical details of what we were talking about. And I wish that they, the talks had been continued. I think that he clearly was an, an authoritarian. He had control of his country. But it was one of the more interesting things I've ever done. A little strange because we didn't know what was going to happen because we had no embassy there. But I did get the sense that he was knowledgeable um, and not crazy. I'm just um, my attention is occasionally drawn to your pin brooch, of which you're, you're very famous. Yeah. So much so, I think you've had an entire exhibition devoted to yes. your pins, which it's just definitely a first and possibly a last <laughs> for a, a Secretary of State. And I wrote about it a couple of years ago, actually, in our sister magazine, 1843, about the symbolism and messages uh, of some of the, the pins that you were, were wearing. I mean, that's an example of, of how things can be put across without words. Should we do more of that? And well, what I, we and if I may, how it started was I went to the UN in 93 and the... Uh, uh, ceasefire of the Gulf War was translated into a series of sanctions resolutions. And my job was to make sure that the sanctions stayed on. And so I said dreadful things about Saddam Hussein every day, which he deserved because he's invaded Kuwait. And so there was a poem in the papers in Baghdad comparing me to many things. And among them was a serpent. And so I had a snake pin and I started wearing it whenever we talked about Iraq. And that's how the whole thing evolved. The pin I'm wearing today is actually of Mercury, the messenger. And since that's what my book is about, I thought that that would make sense. I uh, really feel very strongly that what is important is to do something. And those of us that are troubled by what is going on need to speak out and need to understand that freedom of the press is actually basic to what is going on because information is power. But I also do think the following thing is that there are disagreements, and many of them are legitimate. And what we need to do is to talk to people we disagree with. I don't like the word tolerance because it comes from tolerate, put up with. I think we need to respect the views of others and be able to have civilized conversations. Uh, Donald Trump wears his American flag pin. Not such a surprising choice there. I mean, what, what would your new pin be for a new era? I think it would be, um, if I could design such a pin, one where there really is some way of understanding that interdependence of our countries is positive and not negative. I do have a pin, actually, which is of a globe with hands in, in holding it, uh, which I think made some sense, because I do think it's going to take uh, caring about others and understanding that what happens in whatever country does affect all of us. Madeleine Albright, thank you very much. Thank you very much. And we want to hear what you think. Head to economist.com slash openfuture to join the debate. You can also email us radio at economist.com or tweet us at Economist Radio using the hashtag OpenFuture. And if you'd like to subscribe to The Economist, well, go to economist.com slash radio offer 24-7.
12 issues for $12 or £12. I'm Anne McElvoy in London. This is The Economist. Traffic jams, tailgating, pile-ups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.